Hello, listeners, and welcome back to This Week in Black History, Society, and Culture, a podcast of the Black and African Diaspora Forum of Monmouth University. I'm Hedy B. Williams, your host. Today on This Week in Black History, Society, and Culture, we have Dr. Holly Pinheiro, Assistant Professor of African American History at Furman University, and the author of the recently published The Family's Civil War, Black Soldiers and the Fight for Racial Justice, published by the University of Georgia Press. Welcome to the show, Dr. Pinheiro. Thank you, Dr. Williams, and thank you to your audience for this opportunity. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yes, thank you so much. So this issue of Black families has been a critical subject in the history of African Americans and is a subject that continues to be widely debated in U.S. history, society, and culture in terms of the structure and resilience of the Black family um, during and after slavery down to the present. So today we are going to discuss um, this, this is exciting new book, The Family's Civil War. But first, let's discuss Dr. Pinheiro's research and teaching interest. Tell us a little bit about your, your teaching and uh, research interest, Holly. Uh, I mean, in many ways, it's influenced by just my, my life. And I mean, like upbringing, partly I was raised in a military culture. My mother served in the United States Navy for 25 years. Uh, my military brat lived literally all over the world. Um, and I think that diversity of experiences and the opportunity to engage with different communities and cultures has really influenced, uh, I hope, me to be more open-minded and just uh, engaging in terms of how I present and we, as a, and I say we with my students, um, engage with the material. Uh, I love teaching. I love it a lot, um, and partly because it's, it's an opportunity to make history, I hope, exciting to the students um, and also to challenge ideas that they, and sometimes I have, uh, and also just to get them to understand that these historical figures uh, of a wide range of time, space, and locations are extremely important, regardless of one's discipline. Uh, and that's really important to me. Um, and I say that because I want to meet the students where their interests are. And we all hear this, I love history, but, and for me, I always say, mm-hmm. do not finish that sentence. Let's, <laughs> let, let me work with the first part of what you just said. Um, And I think that's, you know, it's been reflected in my teaching evals. A lot of students have said that the energy and excitement I bring um, has made them interested or at least interested in the class. And part of that is because I'm I'm a geek. I really love talking about, like, why these things matter and and why we should continue to uh, uplift, elevate, but also challenge like various historical figures. Sure. Since we're brought up to discussion of teaching, tell us what courses you uh, regularly teach or what you're teaching now. Regularly. So um, I've had the privilege of teaching the American history survey courses that, depending on where I've been, has been usually through the uh, early North American history up until 1877 and then the second half, 1877 to the present. I love teaching the Civil War courses. Um, I'm also teaching uh, African-American history courses that have the same cutoff dates in terms of 1877 prior and to the present. Um, I'm really hoping to start incorporating more focused courses on the history of women, uh, particularly black women's important role in American history is something that I would I haven't done yet and would love to do. And uh, looking forward to teaching a first year writing seminar 
I'm here at Furman that's going to really look at the Civil War era through a lens of race, gender, and class, and incorporating things that got me passionate about history, and that includes the film Glory, and uh, being able to talk about how we can use films and popular culture to have critical analysis and and to recognize that for many people, including myself, that's their first introduction um, to these historical topics. Not saying it has to be the end point, but people love films and, you know, we have all this streaming content. So there's many opportunities to get people engaged with it. It's just how we get, maintain and, and foster that interest once it's been manifested with various things like film. Yeah, I think it's a point well taken that uh, the masses get their history from film, whether we like it or not. Mm-hmm. People go to film and, and it might, you know, s- spark an interest in reading a book about the Civil War after they've, you know, seen a film. Mm-hmm. But that's just uh, the world we live in, I think, at the moment. So we do have a lot of students who listen to this podcast as well as educators from all over the world. Mm-hmm. We've been heard in over 1,000 cities worldwide. Wow. And so I want you to talk to those <laughs> um, those potential history majors out right. there. What led you to major in history? I mean, were mm. you already decided when you arrived on a college campus as an undergrad? So this is a great point. And I think um, I've, I've been trying to normalize my path to even getting into college was not what my students have assumed. Um, I came from a working class background. I've, I would say that my passion for history really started with my, my family um, and their commitment to, to having me learn black history specifically. So as a kid, I was reading Malcolm X uh, autobiography and Frederick Douglass and many others. And I didn't realize how important that was until I got older. But when I started going to college, firstly, that was years after a lot of my friends had finished. So I have truthfully felt an inferiority complex being in my 20s, uh, mid to late 20s with students who were you know, just out of high school. And I really struggled with that internally. Um, but and I went to college and community college initially to do law. Uh, but then I realized halfway through, I don't want to do this. But I was I loved that history allowed me to, to keep asking questions um, and it just, it always, like I said, just thinking back to my childhood was something that I always wanted to explore. I would say to students, like, follow your, your heart in terms of what your interests are. Even if history isn't your passion, I say this to all my students, the skills that we learn, that we teach and learn in, in those type of courses in various humanities apply across the board. You're going to do critical thinking. You're going to do writing, reading, and have to explain it in a clear and concise manner. And as I tell my students all the time, We use history every second of every day. It's just whether or not we realize it, whether we're having a debate about sports, uh, music, what we love, what we don't like, um, political events, you name it. So it's like we all engage with history. And to me, it's like that's the beauty of what we do is just whether or not we emphasize how much we do that. Um, I would say like my path to even getting into graduate school, I have to give my utmost respect to all the different mentors Along the way, including uh, I went to the University of Central Florida to finish up my undergraduate experience. And I was a junior sitting in the back of the class. And Dr. Richard Cropo, uh, who was also uh, someone I had the privilege of working with, he one day just said, have you ever thought of grad school? And truthfully, I said to him, no, because I don't see people who look like me 
in the front of these spaces or running programs or running institutions. I said, for me, I've always been, I've struggled with my history is being told by predominantly white people, white men in particular. And while this work might be interesting to you, these are my people. Uh, and that always like resonated with me. And he said, well, then why don't you make that change and continue on with this? And that support meant the world to me because I did not believe I was capable of going to graduate school. And I just, I say that, and I try my best to say that to my students. Like I tell them all the time, like, you don't have to go through to history. You know, it could be a law degree or whatever, but just like, I see the potential in you. Cause I think it's important to provide positive affirmation to students to let them know they are capable of a lot. You students listening to this, you are capable of a lot. Right. And I think that's really important that people hear that more regularly. I absolutely agree. And I hope to do a show soon on mentoring and seeking out mentors. Um, we ne- we do need to hear someone validate, you know, our um, capabilities. I think yes. that's just so important. And I'm glad that you uh, said that here. It's, you know, a very powerful story. And this book is assiduously researched. I'm surprised uh, that you said that you hadn't initially you know, thought about grad school, but this, this book, I think is a testament to your, uh, hard work. And, um, you know, I think it's, I'm just glad you're here to talk about it today. Thank you. Um, our, our last sort of question in part one is, uh, really thinking about why study history, mm. you know, why is it important to study history? I personally feel that the history major is coming back. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to see a lot of students minoring in history. Mm. And I think students are coming to a greater realization of its importance, especially now mm. at this moment, you know, in our, um, you know, society. So why, why is it important to study history? I mean, there's a beauty in history. I mean, to be honest, like, and I thought about this, you know, as I navigated grad school, I learned how to become a better, I hope, human being (laughs) in the sense of one, being able to understand there are other people's experiences beyond myself that are just important, just as important and deserve to be understood, discussed, respected. Um, and, And I really mean that because for me, I'm a gender historian, first and foremost. And, you know, even with my name, like I'm always, whether I like it or not, having discussions about gender um, because people assume with my name one thing, then I walk in the door or they hear me and they go, oh, that's not what we expected. And so for me, it's like, let's talk about that and the assumptions that come in with that through a gendered racialized lens. Uh, you know, for me, it's like I, I think it's important for students, the audience hearing this, is to just know it, it can help you to explain things more critically and clearly, to be able to write, which is something I've been working my entire life to become a better writer. Um, Because I, you know, as I tell my students, and I've shown them examples of things that I've written, even as a graduate student, or when I finished my doctorate, that was just a hot mess. But it's about the constant revision. And to me, I think it's important to study history from a personal standpoint, because I have a responsibility. Uh, my great-grandfather, who passed away a number of years ago, he was born in 1901, and I used to help take care of him. And it it was truly humbling to hear him tell his experiences of, at one point, owning a juke joint, having, you know, 
being able to fight against systemic racism in the South, including the Ku Klux Klan that attempted to drive him out for being successful as an entrepreneur, um, to being a boxer and just like all these different things, seeing a TV for the first time, his love for sports and seeing Hank, he was a Braves fan, hearing and seeing Hank Aaron do everything he did. Like it was, it was surreal to me and to, to made it more personal. He was talking about these historical moments from a per like he lived it. And it made me think like, there are so many other people whose stories matter just as much. And I want to illuminate them. And this book and my research in general really wants to, to uplift these various uh, black families, black individuals, and even some of their white allies to recognize that we can't just talk about the great white male focus, that there are so many fundamental people who change American history, including the people that I have the privilege of researching and teaching. And I'll also close with this. The one thing that I've uh, done, which I actually my students, to be clear, have done at Furman, is we've uh, done an oral history project where they're studying themselves. And we centered it around uh, the book and miniseries Roots. And these students were able to trace, in some cases, their families back to, you know, the 1500s. And one of my students found out uh, that their relative was part of a sit-in demonstration here in Greenville that another relative of theirs uh, was honored by the NAACP for their advocating of uh, the protection of rights for migrant, migrant farmers in the 1970s. And it was truly inspiring to see how deeply these students research their lives and understand that they and their families are important historical figures right now. And their work was so good that the university is actually in the process of putting it into our special collections and as I told them, just think 20 years from now, you could be sitting in a room and there could be a college lecture or a book written about your family. And the main reason that that happened is because of the work you did. And to me, it's like that's the kind of efforts that students can do to fundamentally change society and our college campuses. We don't have to wait for administration because they're never going to do it as fast as we want. It's how we make that change right now. So for me, it's watching the ways that the students are taking the what we do, how we talk, the skills that they're learning, and they inspire me. And I tried my best to make sure to acknowledge that even in my book, because as I, I always want people to know, my students are my collaborators. And I value very much the things and feedback they give me, including various points of that book when I asked them, did this make sense? And one of my students once said, this ain't it, chief. <laughs> and we <laughs> and we talked That's about it. I said, what can I do better? How can I make this more clear? How can I make this more accessible to a wider audience? And, and I think we as scholars, educators, need to also understand that our students can inspire and help us to become better as well. I, I totally agree with that. And I learn from my students all the time. You know, whenever I'm trying to ponder an idea mm -hmm. or writing, you know, a new book or whatever it is, I always learn from them. I learn from them every class session. Mm -hmm. And that's how we have to, I think, I think I like that word collaborators um, for sure. So let's turn directly to your book now. And if you can give us first a brief synopsis of your book and tell us what makes it distinctive in this, I mean, civil war history yeah. <laughs> as a long historiography. Yes. And so tell us about it. All right. So the, the, the elevator pitch, if you will. So this is a book <laughs> that is primarily focusing first and foremost on freeborn uh, African-Americans who lived in Philadelphia 
um, between 1850 until about the 1930s, but specifically uh, the soldiers that served in either the 3rd, the 6th, or the 8th United States Colored Infantry, or USCI, uh, which were part of the USCT regiments um, that were born in Philadelphia. But they're really just the starting point. It's really about the families that they are a part of, which totals nearly 1,000 individuals, including those soldiers. And I really wanted to understand, and I often like use the Jerry Seinfeld voice in my head, who are these people? But like at the core, that's really what I wanted to know. Who are these soldiers or veterans long before their service? What was their familial makeup? Who are their parents? Who are their guardians? Who are their siblings? What were the communities? Did they go to school? Like, and what happened? Did these young men, if they uh, had various relationships, what happened and how military service impacts their families? Not only the moment they seek to enlist, but those who were successful and go through the process of being a soldier, what happens to their dynamics? And especially for those who survived the war, and in various conditions, what happens to them after? And how do their families, for better and worse, um, live with the long-term, generations-long consequences of military service? And I say part of this inspiration is because, and I've come to this realization recently, this was a way to, to provide like closure for me and my family, because my mother served. And I've always been struggling with how people talked about her military service and limiting her to being a veteran or a service member and not a mother, not a daughter, not a friend, not a community member. Like she is all these things. And the same can be said for these soldiers and those now, or even historically, they're people and we need to humanize their lived experiences and understand their communities and families are everything to understanding the civil war. So you let this uh, tell us about the title, because you 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 sort of, you know, in your synopsis, you are talking about the importance of family, you know, beyond service. And, you know, these service individuals are more than their service. Mm-hmm. But what what led you to the family civil war in this this title before we get into more uh, in-depth discussion? Yeah, I the title to me, it partly came through because of the records that I was reading, um, which I'm happy to talk about. Uh, partly I was just noticing, and I, this is in my introduction, was that I've, this is not new, many other scholars have said this, um, but that for me it's recognizing that Black people, especially then and sadly now, have been born into a race war where their lived experiences are defined by their skin complexion. And that these Black soldiers, when they were young men, when they were children, they and their families are in a war for survival against systemic racism that impacted every individual in their homes and in their communities. Unfortunately, nobody was protected. And the the family's war continues on in military service and evolves in terms of uh, the ways in which some of their family members are able to fight against various forms of systemic racism while also opening themselves up to another multiple layers of discrimination. Um, and that war continues generations later as they're trying to navigate the Civil War pension application process, which was unbelievably invasive into these individuals' private lives. I learned way too much about their lived experiences that I didn't need to know, in my opinion. 
but also how they were fighting against the white erasure of military service and blacks, uh, black soldiers, black communities support and ultimately winning the civil war. So it's like these families are constantly fighting to be heard, to be valued, to be protected. And the civil war is just part of that story. Yeah, you know, it's making me think about my dad's experience because my dad was a Green Beret in mm. Vietnam and he was unfortunately there the worst time that they sprayed Agent Orange, mm. um, 67 and 68. And my parents, they divorced after 30 years. Mm. But my mom would always say it was the war. My dad came, brought the war back home. Mm-hmm. And even though they stayed married for another 25 years, you know, after his service, that the war put a strain because obviously he was impacted by Agent Orange as well. But there is a direct connection between his service and his family life and the long-term impact of that particular war. Just made me think about your, your discussion here. Just really made me think about that, um, you know, personal family history. But, um, it makes sense, right? The title right, now right. to me so t- completely makes sense. Right. And um, but let's talk about how. So how is your work distinctive? And it's tied to this question about how does your work build on or engage with and or intervene in the vast historiography of Civil War history? That's a great question. So <laughs> my friends always get frustrated when I say this. Like, there's part of me that doesn't th- like. I love my project, but I to be clear and putting myself in conversation with black soldiers, some of them become civil war historians, specifically focusing on their civil war experiences because they are so upset by the fact that white scholars um, as early as the eight as 1867 are systematically trying to remove their experiences. So I am first and foremost saying that my book is the continuation of efforts that began over 100 years ago. Though the difference that I would say with my project is I am centering it on these men as people that includes their families in a way that brings not just their wartime lives to the forefront, but their entire personal lives, including the people that they loved, lived with, struggled with and against throughout that process. I'm also putting myself in conversation uh, with a number of great scholars such as Brandy Clay Brimmer. James G. Mendez, who both have uh, published some excellent books that came out within the last two years. Uh, one's called Claiming Union Widowhood. The other's called A Great Sacrifice. But also Shandra Manning, uh, Tara Hunter, and a number of other scholars who have looked at um, Black soldiers and Kelly Mesrick as well. And only a few, though, have really looked at what does it mean for freeborn Black communities. Um, and that's not to dismiss those who look at the, the freed experiences at least on my mother's side, we've traced back um, on some of our relatives uh, in the Carolinas and even Florida that were enslaved. So I never want to say we should stop talking about them. However, what gets lost, unfortunately, in many conversations is what does it mean if we look at freeborn Black people? And even if we talk about freeborn Black people, a lot of individuals want to connect it to glory, even though glory predominantly was a mix of soldiers with many coming from uh, slave states. And uh, Douglas Egerton has written about them in one of his books, Thunder at the Gate. And for me, what I'm trying to say is 
we need to talk about free born black people living in a place like Philadelphia, as even Dubois shown in his excellent book, The Philadelphia Negro, there is rich scholarship because my work is also in conversation with urban history, northern urban history, such as Dubois, Theodore Hirschberg, and Joe Trotter Jr., just to name a few to say there is a long history of what is happening in Philadelphia in terms of its important role in American history, in abolitionist history, in women's history, in Civil War era history. But yet there really hasn't been a book length study that centers on these black people who have a unique experience in which they are navigating a city where sadly race riots, large scale, were very frequently common throughout their lives. And that's even part of the conversation to me is like they are at literally a war to survive before and during the war and after. And these are some of the who's who in terms of the the individuals they interact with from Octavius Cotto, who is also connected to the USCT because he will become a recruiter to Lucretia Mott, Anna Dickinson, the Purvises, the Fortins, William Still. Like it's a who's who, but we don't really seem to talk about. And I hate saying like the average because they're not average. These people helped win the war. Uh, the the individuals who are not socioeconomically affluent, who didn't have the time or resources to document their lives in the ways that others did. But they are critical to understanding how we understand American history. And I'll just say this. One of the things I never envisioned would happen is that a distant relative uh, reached out to me uh, from this book and gave me their approval. Uh, and when I read, with their permission, pieces of an email that they sent, it makes me cry in like ways I never thought possible because this relative said that I validated things that they have been trying to make known for years. And that's, for me, going back to why I love and do history, the fact that an individual who I wrote about since grad school, I, being validated by their descendant is more than any book prize will ever give. Because to be to be told you have done my my great great grandmother justice, that's all I've ever wished for when I started this project. Yeah, that's very powerful. I mean, you you as you mentioned, and this ties to our next question about sources that these were ordinary people that were not written about. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't save their records or they have access to their records and um, makes your work distinctive that you're looking at this reborn population from Philadelphia and the ordinary experiences of um, individuals who are lesser known mm -hmm. or unknown. Right. Uh, your work is making them known through this, through this uh, family civil war. Um, what about sources though, in terms of the everyday lives of the individuals that you took a look at, what specific sources that you, used to put this narrative together? So it's a, a mixture of primary and secondary sources. Uh, some of the main ones would be Civil War pensions, which are, as I tell individuals, it's like, if you've never experienced trying to even get one, like the request to get it, and once you never know what the pension is going to have, which is kind of the beauty, but also frustrating. Um, so what I mean is one pension could be two pages. Then I have one that is eight to 700 pages, uh, which wow. is very tedious in terms of having to catalog and go through and like, what is it saying? And how do the, 
uh, and the pensions, which individuals, including Donald Schaefer, Elizabeth Rogozin, uh, the late Megan McClintock, and others have really mined into the pensions are very problematic because they are highly invasive due to um, the federal government's obsession with white vi- white vigilance into black life. And that's, again, where the title comes back in one layer, too, is because these pensions are literally, in my opinion, wars against black family structure. Uh, mm. And they don't understand. It's, and to be clear, it's not their fault that this is happening. They, no one knew um, how where this was going to lead in terms of the invasiveness when a panel of white men will say, tell me about the first time you had intimate relations with this veteran since you had a child out of wedlock. Or since you can't prove that your family is legitimate, um, then you don't get this pension. And just the invasiveness into their lives, it horrified me. But also it's the the persistence and the agency that these families are showing through these records is really powerful, including making it very clear, going back to your point, I do believe many individuals knew they don't have the time or resources to be able to document their lives. So they will start to tell many different aspects of their life because they know it's going to be written down, including those who provided testimony. So for example, if the case was about someone named John Johnson and I provide testimony, I might say, yes, I'm going to talk about that case, but let me tell you my life story real quick. And there is, to me, there's a beauty in these people understood what this record could allow them to have uh, cataloged. Though there, again, there's a lot of biases and discriminatory practices through the process, which I note in the book. The other is the federal census. I, I recognize those records are dry and many have written about the biases that those have, but that's where I was actually able to start to trace the family structure and its evolution and to confirm through cross-referencing in the pensions. For example, when individuals married, who did they live with as they aged? Were some of these people related? Like, And what kind of jobs did they have? That's where I was able to trace the kind of employment opportunities um, and success that a number of Black mothers had as these uh, young men become future soldiers experienced, including also opening up their homes to newly freed people. And in some instances, living in interracial households, which to me was a paradox, given, as I say, Philadelphia is the city that, you know, is about brotherly love, but historically has hated brothers and sisters. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so it's like those together, but then the other gold mine is black newspapers of the time. One of those being the weekly Anglo-African that published out of New York City and the Christian recorder that published out of Philadelphia that was is connected to the African Methodist Episcopalian Church. Those sources, audience, I cannot stress enough. Even if you're not looking at the Civil War, go look at them. You can get them through interlibrary loan or different databases. They're so rich and they talk about a lot, including even uh, apprehension to serving. They, uh, many soldiers will also write about their experiences. And one of those soldiers, and I realized halfway through doing the research, was he was talking about um, writing about what he saw on the front lines and wanting to go home. And the name kept popping up. And I realized he's one of the individuals from my sample. His name is Henry S. Harmon. Well, he's actually going to stay in Florida after his service was over. And he becomes one of the first black men to pass a state bar in the state of Florida and hold political office. So even though these are black Philadelphians, the records I was able to find, they are traveling the country. And in some cases, they are successful economically and in terms of their professions. 
Uh, I also use public speeches by black and white uh, abolitionists, including men and women. Uh, the and the Union League Club records, because there was one in New York and Philadelphia, and they were tied to enlistment for black uh, soldiers, though it was very problematic, their motivations. And, and also the published memoirs, not just of my regiments, but regiments including those from the 54th and the 55th Massachusetts. And I've written about this. Um, I've had the privilege of having it published in Black Perspectives. And one of those was about that Black women were visible and very important individuals throughout the recruitment and training process for Black soldiers. Because I'm so tired of historians ignoring or denigrating how important Black women were to the Civil War effort. And if you read the records by the soldiers, they will say constantly, Black women are here. They are the most important people to the war effort. And all you have to do is read the sources. They're there. Hmm. Yeah, and I think you see that with World War One as well, as hmm. some scholars have begun to write about Black women and their support of Black soldiers, hmm. you know, at, in war, wartime. So very excellent point. What about chronology? This is a, a goes well beyond, obviously, the 19th century. Yeah. And what was your, <laughs> what made you do it now? <laughs> that's no, I'm that's a vast chronology. I thought about that. I said, wow, it's amazing. I, uh, thank you. I mean, actually me and some other scholars like kind of laughed about that because I'm going to keep it real. Like when this is an extension of my dissertation project, I, for the dissertation purposefully stopped in 1880 because I was like, yeah, I don't do. <laughs> you want to get done. Right, well, that, and that as audience, a good dissertation is a done dissertation. I, I used to hear it all that's the right. time. And I will say that I was able to revamp my dissertation for this book and future projects. Truthfully, I was legitimately scared to go past Reconstruction because that's just not what I do. Um, and it's not my research interest. However, particularly the Civil War pensions and the federal census. Um, maybe this is going to sound a little corny, but like I kept hearing these people's voices screaming at me. Like essentially saying, fool, our lives did not stop in 1877. Uh, and, and, I, and I started to really see that the records in some instances were going into the early 20th century. Now, I will say this totally spoils the book, which I hope the audience will get. And I also qualify, if you can't afford it, ask your libraries to get it, like, please, because I think I want this accessible and I tried to write it in such a way. One of the records that I found uh, in the the pension records actually had a communication from a daughter of a deceased USCT veteran writing about her mother who was dying of cancer um, during the Great Depression. And she had been her mother had been rejected from a pension. And the letter was written to the First Lady of the United States of America, Eleanor mm -hmm. Roosevelt. And I'm paraphrasing what she says. Uh, the, the daughter will say, in the grand scheme of things, everything that's happening in the world, I know that I don't really matter. But, and I'm a poor black woman from Philadelphia, but my mother is dying of cancer. Will you please look into this case because we desperately need this money? And then she closes by saying, you and your husband, the president, have done so much for black people. Will you please do this one favor for me? And like that letter, I mean, legitimately, I was shaking holding it because she was screaming to me, you need to remember this too. Our lives did not stop when Lee surrendered. 
our lives did not stop when reconstruction and and so the the calling just was there and as i joke with people the president you know eleanor responds to this woman in seven days i can't get people to answer an email in two weeks <laughs> and and i'm gonna keep it real <laughs> eleanor's response which i hope you audience will read to see how it's, it was powerful. Uh, and, and the fact that these two women will have an extensive communication over the, the impact of the civil war on their families during the great depression. That's what called me and said, fool, you have to go past 1880. Um, and, and honestly it was a struggle. Um, and it was scary. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. It was scary writing about periods that I don't know, but at the same time, my the epilogue for the book to me was one of the best things I've ever written um, because it, and it really centered on this this back and forth between these two important women and and that's as I was telling some graduate students recently you go where the records go even if it makes you uncomfortable even if it's scary um, and it goes beyond what you're putting as your expertise because if we stop where we feel comfortable then we're 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 not doing justice to these people's lives in totality. I, I like that advice. It's an advice that I receive as a, a grad student, you know, be led by the primary sources, allow the sources to speak to you. Right. Uh, for any uh, students listening to this show, you know, allow the sources to speak back to you mm-hmm. and follow them. Yes. It's, it's great advice. I think. Um, tell us, Tell our listeners, you know, again, from all over the world, you know, this uh, phrase USCT (laughs) explaining who they are and how and when they were formed. You know, give us a little more background information. So the USCT, the acronym is the United States Colored Troops, uh, which was an offshoot of the uh, United States Army during the Civil War era. Now, there are many different... um, regiments within the USCT. So there's the United States Colored Infantry or USCI. There's the artillery, heavy heavy cavalry, um, and a number of others. And this USCT audience does not include Black uh, individuals who served in the United States Navy, uh, which is something that more research needs to be done on. And I say that knowing full well, I privilege the United States Army in my research, which also brings a paradox to me personally, since my mom served in the Navy and I'm still struggling, like, why don't I do the Navy? But that's a whole nother conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the USCT uh, will officially form after the emancipation, the, the final draft of the Emancipation Proclamation takes effect. Uh, and then a number of other federal legislative policies by the United States um, and the United States War Department. And they are extremely important. Uh, but as I try to write in the book, the USCT and donning or a United States Navy uniform is not the first time any black person in or even in nearby ter- uh, borders of the United States are fighting. They're fighting every second of their lives to survive and to to hopefully establish a truly egalitarian society in which race is not defining and gender is not defining one's experiences. Uh, the USCT, um, and I've written about this in my book and other places, especially for the audience, because students always are shocked when I say this. <clears throat> a number of USCT regiments, including some of the ones I researched for this book, are part of the official end of the Civil War. Black regiments are there when they chase Robert E. Lee's forces to Appomattox. USCT regiments are at 
Appomattox, though popular depictions systematically erased their presence, but they were there. In fact, one of the soldiers that I researched, he says that in the pensions and he says, quote, I was at the surrender. And I always like read that and I'm like, bruh, that's all you want to say about that? <laughs> like you were at one of the <laughs> defining moments in American history and you can't give me more, but they're also a part of Juneteenth and, and they, they travel and do everything. So the thing that's the beauty about the USCT and many other scholars have written about this. And I say this to the audience, even if a regiment was formed in New York or Pennsylvania or Louisiana, that doesn't mean every black soldier from those or black individual is from those locations. They are from everywhere. Some of my research for a future project has already found that I have seen black people from as far as Germany, from Peru, Cuba, Canada, Jamaica. They're coming from all over. So this war is not just about black liberation and equality, one could argue, for the United States context. This becomes a global fight for equality. And that's the great thing. And more work needs to be done on that so that we can understand how it's not just limited to African-Americans. Black people are involved in this fight and connections to the USCT. Wow. That's a book right there, Professor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, or someone, a dissertation that I would love to read in sight. <laughs> I know, right? That's like a whole, a whole new topic. That's great. So tell us, how did the war impact the Black family? At mm. one point in your book, you talk about, you state, you know, the war devastated many African-American mm. families. So can you look at a family or case study mm -hmm. to give, give us a little yeah. bit more of the story? So, yeah, I mean, and, and I'll, I'll provide the caveat that there are starkly different experiences for those who are freed and then those who are freeborn. Um, and a number of the scholars that I mentioned, um, including Eugene Genovese, Herbert Gutman, many others have written on the freed experience. The freeborn uh, experience, it's going to hit them in very different ways. Um, and part of that is because due to discrimination racially engendered, children in these uh, northern locations, sometimes young as five years old, are having to work, even if temporarily. So every person in the home, including fictive kin, are unfortunately responsible for trying to keep their homes economically stable. So when any individual, any individual is removed from those homes, excuse me, uh, and let's say they are no longer, no longer able-bodied, it will have long-term impacts on the entire household. And in ways that I and even the soldiers and their families themselves could have never envisioned once they mobilized uh, to do their part for the war effort. So one example um, would be uh, the family of Benjamin Davis and Mary Leeton. Uh, and I actually open with their story uh, in the book. So, and this was going back to your question about why did I you know, extend the research so long? One of those was the fact that Mary Leeton, who the, she and Benjamin will have a common law marriage. Unfortunately, from the eyes of the federal government and even some members of the black community, they are going to be seen as illegitimate and they will have long-term consequences on their family structure. She says in about, I think, 1884, giving testimony that the Civil War and the United States Army destroyed her family. And I sat with that statement for a long time because I really didn't know what to do with it. And then she starts to really unpack everything that led to her making that point. 
And it actually goes years before when, so with the film Glory, for those who aren't familiar, that focuses on the 54th and elements of the 55th Massachusetts. Her husband, Benjamin, attempted to enlist in the 54th Massachusetts. And in fact, 300 black men from Pennsylvania will uh, actually make it and serve in that regiment. He will get a staph infection along the way and be unable to enlist. Unfortunately, not only does that happen, he will miss the birth of their only son, Jerome, which I really struggled with just trying to write and like, how do I even unpack that? He will eventually enlist in the sixth USCI that mobilized in Philadelphia. He will tell uh, Mary before he enlists that he does not consider her, in his opinion, to be a fit mother and basically demands that she gives up guardianship to his parents. Before she uh, like willingly or before she does that, she takes her child, Jerome, on public transit. And there are many scholars who have written about the ways in which black people, but especially black women, are using public transit as civil rights activism well before we're talking about Rosa Parks. Because to me, it's important to understand that Rosa is part of a long rich history of civil rights activism on public transit, including what Mary DeLeaton does by putting her body in harm's way, unfortunately, into those um, streetcars. She will take her child, newborn child, to Camp William Penn, uh, where the soldiers are training, and will force Benjamin in front of all the other soldiers to demand or to recognize that Jerome is their legitimate child. And that a number of veterans will actually say years later, we were there and we remember how awkward that was. And it's because of that, that Jerome will get a minor's pension case. And sadly, long story short, Jerome will never be able to interact with his mother again due to many different circumstances that are unfortunate. There, uh, his father will die as a prisoner of war. And he will be talking about how the war destroyed his family as a child. So it's like, to me, once we get to the more personal messiness of how families were directly impacted by this, we move beyond the rah-rah Frederick Douglass, you know, eagle on the button phrase that everyone wants to use. And as much as I love and admire Frederick Douglass, we need to stop privileging his statements to understand the Black family and soldiering experience. He is a very important, was a very important individual, but he does not represent, nor will I even say the people I'm studying represent a universal black experience, but we need to talk about more, like you said, case studies of families and how the war is with them forever. I've seen other instances of domestic abuse, of, of just violence that manifests itself in horrific ways that I did not ever expect when I started this project as a grad student. That is powerful, powerful uh, statement there, Professor. I mean, just it really changes our, our view of that moment. Right. And just thinking of the war and how it de devastated, you know, what you say, devastated these families. I would like to qualify. Just... It, there, there is also a beauty. Um, and what I saw, at least in the records, is that there is no question the harm it's doing to these families but it's also the commitment of these families to be remembered. Uh, mm -hmm. We talk a lot about monuments and I don't delve into that just discourse because that's not my thing, but I want to respect uh, what other scholars like Dr. Hillary Green has said 
these individuals were living monuments and they were demanding through the historical record to be remembered. And it's like that to me is the beauty of this because I don't ever want to hear individuals saying we can't find black women's voices. They are there, persistent and extremely powerful in pension records. Black women are there. You just got to look and listen to them. Yes, indeed. I mean, just talking about um, records and uncovering uh, black women's voices, you know, demanding to be heard in these um, pension records. It's just teaches us all how to do um, the work of recovery yes. and um, historical scholarship, really. I think it's a master class and this book is in a lot of ways. Thank you. And how to do history. Uh, very much so. So you mentioned Black Philadelphia mm-hmm. and all the prominent um, African-Americans who lived in Philadelphia. How do you think, uh, say more about how your, your work as a whole sheds new light on our understanding of Black Philadelphia, which is going to be, I'm um, actually, I think I'm on a panel mm-hmm. at the um, American Historical Association on Black Philadelphia. You know, and it's always, you know, I'm looking at an elite woman mm-hmm. on that panel. And, you know, we always go back to the elite who right. lived in that city. So overall, how does this work change or shed new light on Black Philadelphia? I mean, first and foremost, I love like Black Philadelphia now and then uh, because they're so rich. And I will say that I have definitely privileged a metropolitan city with a long history of activism and agency and fights for equality and, and a lot of who's who uh, then and now. And I think there, you know, I recognize that in terms of that it was easy to do the preliminary work, knowing Dubois wrote an excellent book on it, and many others have as well. I think the thing that I'm hoping to, to inject into the conversation is if we can contextualize what individuals like Mary Leighton, the Davises, uh, you know, and many others, we can provide more understanding of what's happening on the ground level. Because to me, the eagle on the button and like all these different things that Douglas and even the black newspapers are saying, they're speaking to those people in the communities. So we need to turn, I think our attention to the audience of these prominent individuals who also then have their own things that they're saying back to these prominent individuals, including uh, apprehension to enlist, including saying why, what is the consequences of this um, or why has people for, why have people forgotten us? Because that's one of the lingering things that I noted was just like many individuals moved on, but these families can't move on because the war is still with them and they're fighting mm. just to keep each other alive and stable in every sense of that word. Um, I will say for my second book, I'm actually going to look beyond the uh, Philadelphia focus to look at black Pennsylvania. And what I'm already seeing in that new project is that, a lot of the black soldiers aren't coming from the big cities. They're coming from the outskirts and the, the coal regions, which actually tells a completely different story. And we, and myself included, need to understand the black experience beyond the big cities because they're in a, one could argue, a different kind of war because they may not have the same kind of protections and community structures that in a place like Philadelphia they would have access to. Sure. 
Another another book. Uh, well, yeah, I, book, yeah. book number two, right? I've already started it, but that one's going to take a long time because it's it's forcing me to become a historian of trains, for example, because I need to know how do they get to Philly? Because half of that conversation is going to be the battle that individuals face to just get to train to be in the battle. Hmm. So as we come to an end here, what? so your book does obviously engage the very definition of family. And you also discuss fictive kin networks. And so can you tell us a little bit about the importance, well, you know, the meaning of these fictive kin networks, again, for our audience, and how important they were in sustaining and defining what we mean by the Black family? Yeah, I... The inclusion of fictive kin um, was one that I came to, and I want to be clear to the audience, particularly students. First and foremost, my students helped me to, to reach that understanding because I was doing lectures where I kept using different phrasing and languages that didn't make sense, including border. I used to use that a lot, and I really was struggling with that because I felt like that was such a limited term that basically confines a dynamic to a quid pro quo transactional relationship. And that to me, and including I'm saying this of myself, because I use that term a lot in previous work, I was, I believe, denigrating the humanity of these people's lives. Because when I'm seeing formerly enslaved women who are in their 90s in some of these homes, they could be there because these individuals cared about them. But I also thought of my own life. You know, I was lucky enough to have a best friend who was an engineer and essentially helped me finish grad school because I was so broke. And he opened his home to me. I didn't have anything to offer him other than friendship. So I wasn't a boarder. Like we are friends. I consider him a brother. And to me, it's like, even just looking at my own life, I've, I wanted to be more respectful to human interaction. So fictive kin is basically recognizing that family is not limited to blood or marital relation. And there are many scholars, um, anthropologists, uh, scholars of enslavement, indigenous scholars who have used this term. And I saw so much value in that because even looking at black familial experiences and enslavement, because of the harm and one of the core of that institution was to destroy black families. And yet even in bondage, these people created family structures to love and support each other. And I saw the same thing happening in freedom. And by recognizing that these homes were ways in which family structures evolved, partly because racism and gender discrimination forced them to, but also because there was a genuine care, concern, and love for their community. It became a way to be more respectful, in my opinion, and to empower these people in ways to just say, they're not borders. These are families. Mm. That's definitely, it's certainly fictive Ken networks. We all, I think, something intrinsic to the Black family experience. Mm. Yes. You know, the woman who took care of me when I was a child was our neighbor. Mm -hmm. And to this day, I call her auntie. Right. You know, she took care of us. She was our babysitter, but she became great friends with my mom. And there's it's unquestioned that she is our aunt. And I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's, know, I think for students, when I bringing in your example, Everyone has a story like you got an uncle or a cousin or, you know, a grandma. And I'm like, they're not probably your actual relative, but you see them as such. So this isn't a foreign sure. concept to you. We all do this. And that's the beauty of this is people have been doing this for a long time. And once we 
recognize that care that you have for that person, we can be more inclusive in the family structure. Sure. So as we come to a close here, tell us about your future research projects. Oh, boy. Uh, I have already started um, the second book, which, again, will focus on Camp William Penn as the center, but it's really about looking at Black Pennsylvanians. And I'm toying with the idea of framing it around the Black Pennsylvanian desire to be part of the Civil War as soldiers and supporters was a way to demand inclusion in the national family. Um, I've also starting some research to look at some of the educational um, institutions to see where these soldiers and black community in Philadelphia came from. And I'm talking more about the Institute for Colored Youth, uh, because that's basically the who's who of black intellectual uh, individuals from Emily Davis, Octavius Cotto, you know, you name it. And to me, it's just like understanding how those school, that school and others help to shape future leaders is, is really important. And then I'd say the last book that's in my head, we'll see if it ever happens, is looking at uh, what were known as the refreshment saloons, even though they didn't serve alcohol. In Philadelphia, there was two of them. And over a million people, black, white, male, female, uh, Confederate, and United States uh, individuals pass through these spaces. They will actually gain the adulation and praise from Presidents Lincoln and Andrew Johnson, and even a Confederate governor who will say, if you're a POW, that's the place you want to go to. And really the starting for that, looking at that project was because those were also spaces where black soldiers were able to have public celebrations as they went to war. And so I want, I really want to understand what was the dynamic of those spaces since they were operated by white women managed by white men and excluded black women. And yet they allowed black men through these spaces. So there's a multitude of ways I want to really examine that. So God willing, I get to all these book projects in the midst of also articles that always pop into my brain, but we shall see. Mm-hmm. Sounds like some great projects. Thank you. Well, I want to thank you for joining me today on this week in black history, society and culture. Thank you so much. And thank you to your audience and just, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I, it's a lot. Thank you.